This morning we're turning to Judges chapter 17. You'll find this on page 216 of your pew Bibles. Again, Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17, beginning with the first verse. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ear, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my, from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, I ask that you give to me strength and clarity of speech as I proclaim your word that I would be proclaiming it from your word and that you would cause us to feed upon your word and upon your son and so be nourished and encouraged as those who are in Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I think I've uh, mentioned before uh, how much I enjoy uh, reading Jane Austen. Uh, there is uh, something to be found and seen each time I pick up one of her books. Uh, but there's also, and, and, and I've been reflecting upon this as I've reflected upon this chapter, there, there's also an aspect uniquely frustrating uh, in her books. Her villains rarely get punished. Uh, in fact, her villains often get what they want. Uh, in Sense and Sensibility, for example, we, uh, we have Lucy Steele, who is uh, uh, clearly out for no one but herself. And in the course of that book, she, she makes miserable the lives of the characters who we are mo most meant to love. 
And though they, they themselves do find their happy, happy, happiness in the end, so it seems does Lucy. She gets her happiness as well. In fact, uh, Jane Austen writes that towards the end of the book of this, she, she says this, the, the whole of Lucy's behavior in the affair and the pros- prosperity which crowned it, therefore, may be held forth as a most encouraging instance of what an earnest and unceasing attention to self-interest, however its progress may be apparently obstructed, will do in securing every advantage of fortune with no other sacrifice than that of time and conscience. Lucy gets what Lucy wants. And yet, while Lucy certainly has her victory, it is clear that we as the readers are meant to understand that in some fashion, she has taken the lesser prize. She has received the lesser prize in in contrast to the characters who we are most meant to love. They have received the better prize. But of course, as is the case in most of Jane Austen's books, in order for them to gain that prize, they must first suffer for the cause of righteousness. Uh, they, They must also be required to repent of their own folly, of their own sin, the, the, the characters that we most love in her books. Uh, they, that is, that's a repeated theme in her books. The characters whom you are most meant to love, most meant to approve of, are, are, are made to see their own folly. They're made to see their own sin and to repent of their sins. And having done that, then to receive their rest, uh, which is often shown by way of a wedding. Jane Austen's curse, therefore, what I meant by that in the title of the sermon, is that which falls upon her villains. They never learn their folly. They never get that opportunity to repent. Instead, they get exactly what they want. Uh, This same theme is in play in Judges chapter 17. It's also in play in chapter 18. We see in this chapter God's people no longer judging according to God's word, but instead according to their own eyes. And the Lord gives them exactly what they want. Uh, He does not rebuke them. Instead, he gives them what they want, allowing them to be hardened in their sins, thinking, in fact, as Micah does, that they are approved of by God. We are warned in this passage, therefore, to flee from our own presumed righteousness. We are warned to to flee from this idea that we are approved of by God for our deeds. We are to flee instead to the Savior's atoning work on our own behalf.
That's what we are to flee to. So there will be three points this morning. The first is a veneer of godliness. Uh, the second, getting what you want. And the third, getting what you need. So a veneer of godliness, then getting what you want, and then getting what you need. So what do I mean by a veneer of godliness? Well, think, think of what a veneer is. It's a way of, of making a, a cheaper wood, even a, a, a particle board, to appear as though it is more beautiful, more pleasing, uh, that it's a, a, a more expensive wood. Uh, a veneer is a, is a thin layer that is placed across the top of that wood to make it appear as though it's another type of wood. Uh, and it's glued to the surface. And of course, when you, when you have a veneer, when you're working with furniture that has a veneer, uh, and you suppose you decide you want to strip that, that, that furniture and, and put on a new finish, you have to be very careful, right? Because if you sand down that veneer, what, what might happen? You might sand through that veneer, and then that furniture is ruined because the veneer is ever so thin. A, a veneer of godliness, therefore, means that hidden right beneath the surface of what appears to be godliness is something inferior, something that isn't godly, uh, something that is, in fact, ungodly. And that's what we read in this passage. Uh, let me take you through this passage just very briefly. We begin in this passage with a man of Ephraim. He's an Israelite. So we're already being told that we should be disposed to like the gentleman. And then we're told his name. It's Micah. Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Well, again, we have another reason to like the man. And then we hear that he confesses to his mother that it was he who had stolen her silver. And we start to really like the guy. He's, he's a humble guy. He, he confesses. He repents. And he restores it to her. He brings back the money to her. And, and she forgives him. And we start to like her too because she pronounces a blessing upon him saying, Blessed be my son by Yahweh, by the Lord, by our covenantal Lord. Blessed be you because you did this. And, and because of her gratitude, and uh, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? She, she further dedicates the silver to the Lord. He says, she says, because you did this, I'm going to dedicate this money to our covenantal God. You almost get the sense at this point, it sounds like a fairy tale. Or, or, or at least it sounds as though he's about to become the hero of the chapter. He's, gonna, he's about to become the next judge. But instead, what happens? Some of the silver is used in order to make a carved image out of wood or stone and then plated with the rest of the silver. That's what we're being told there about about uh, the carved and the metal. It's a, it's a plated image. And that image was to be used that they might worship the Lord, worship their covenantal God. And Micah then sets up this image in his house, having a shrine made uh, in which he might put other gifts to the Lord. He, he makes an ephod, which is a, which is a little miniature garment that you put around the image to give it clothing. And for a time, he goes even further. He, he ordains one of his sons to be as a priest 
Uh, and he does that until the Levite shows up. At which point, the Levi, Micah hires the Levite and ordains him to serve as his personal priest, not to Baal, not, not, to, not to any of the other Canaanites' gods, but to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, of course, you and I know, we, we, I mean, we just sang this earlier, didn't we? Right? We know the Ten Commandments. We, we know that the Lord forbids his people from setting up images, even, even to himself. But man, cut, cut Micah some slack. He, after all, his heart is in the right place, isn't it? He, I mean, if we, if we had asked him, are you doing right by the Lord in all of this? He probably would have said yes. He wants to worship the Lord. He wants to worship the covenantal God, doesn't he? But, but remember what I said, it's a, it's a thin veneer. Look more closely. What could be said about Lucy Steele in, in Sense and Sensibility? She's out for herself. Can also be said of Micah in this passage. The only one he's out for is himself. For example, what sets the whole thing off? He stole money. He stole money from his mother. Uh, he, in, in, in other words, in one fell swoop, as we enter into this chapter, we begin with a man who, who has violated two of the Ten Commandments. Uh, he has violated, you shall not steal. But so also, he has violated the fifth, honor your father and your mother. He has violated both the fifth and the eighth. He, he who of all men, who is like the Lord, should have known and been aware that there's no one like Yahweh. He violated Yahweh, the Lord's covenant. But so also then, as the story progresses, we got to ask, what's his motive for returning the silver to his mother? It was fear. He returned the silver only after his mother, mother had uttered a curse. He was motivated by the fear of the Lord's curse upon him. You can see that because by the corresponding blessing, blessed be you in the name of the Lord, uh, we can presume that his mother had called upon the name of the Lord for the curse. He was motivated, in other words, not by piety, not by repentance, not by a changed heart, but by fear of what may happen to him. And we, I think we can see that, especially when we look towards the end of the chapter, when we read those words of his. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. If you listen to that, you're hearing a pagan. You're hearing a pagan. That is a pagan understanding of the relationship between man and God. It's this idea that, that what causes God's favor to be towards us is dependent upon our worship of him, how, enthusiast, how enthusiastic we might be, how much we put into it, what, what, a, what accruciments, what, what things we can gather around it. 
the household gods, the ephod, the little shrine, and now a Levite. Uh, it's this idea that, that, that by our worship, we might say even by our own supposed righteousness, we might cause the Lord our God to look upon us with favor. That's pagan. That's a pagan mindset. Micah, it appears, did not think that true righteousness mattered. He, he, he did not think that what, was, what mattered was more than the appearance of godliness and worship. For in the course of the account, we already, we already mentioned that he had violated the fifth and the eighth commandment. But in setting up that idol, he goes on to violate the second commandment. And the suggestion that there are household gods, plural, suggests that he's also violating the first and third commandments as well. Do you see that? He's working his way through the entire decalogue. He's working his way through, through the entirety of the commandments. And then on top of that, he also violates the Lord's command about where you may worship the Lord. For the Lord had told his people, he had said to them, you may seek me only where I choose to be found. And where had the Lord chosen to be found? In the tabernacle. That's where he had chosen to be found. So what was Micah up to? In, in, in setting up idols in his house, in, in making it into a place of worship. It, it was like he was trying to drag the Lord his God, the righteous and holy one, into his own house to commune with him that the Lord would therefore bless him. That's what he was doing. He was, he was trying to bend the Lord to his own purposes. When, when God's people turn away from his commandments and, and yet think that by their worship they are somehow right with him, they're like those who put a thin veneer of godliness over their wickedness. They're like those who try to unite their God to themselves in wickedness and, and in hope that therefore they will receive good from him. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? Uh, he talks about it quite scandalously. He, he talks about it saying it's like uniting Christ's body with a prostitute. That that's how horrifying this should be uh, to our ears. There's a veneer of godliness. That's what a veneer of godliness appears like. So how deadly it is, therefore, for those, for those who are caught up in the veneer of godliness, who, who claim to be devoted to God, how deadly it is for them to get what they want, to receive the reward of Lucy Steele. It, it confirms them. What does it do? It confirms them in their own righteousness. It inoculates them. To the gospel. It, it makes them unable to receive the gospel. 
Let me explain this. When, when Micah declares, you see, when, when he declares, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest, Micah is suggest, suggesting in some sense of the word that the Levite is a reward. He has been rewarded with the Levite. I know that the Lord will prosper me because he has given to me this Levite. Well, you can kind of get into Micah's head now. Why would Micah think that? Why has the Lord given to him a Levite? Well, how about because he set up the shrine? How about because he made the ephod and the household gods? How about because he made that carved image and covered it with silver? The Levite, in other words, in Micah's mind's eye, is proof that his worship is acceptable and that God is pleased with him. And that is what it means to do what is right in our own eyes. It is to judge by our own eyes. Do you see that? Let me give, let me give an example uh, um, that, that is perhaps more, more commonplace uh, to this present day. Uh, suppose a man has lived for, for years with a, with a bitter and nagging wife. She nags and she nags and she nags. Until, what, one day... Fed up, he leaves her and finds another wife. And, and in finding this wife, he finds one who is not bitter, who is not combative. It's possible. What happens? Well, his stress goes down, right? He's less stressed. And, and, and now he's more relaxed, Right? And because he's more relaxed, he does better at work. And because he does better at work, he's getting promotions. He's moving up the corporate ladder in a way he wasn't before. And he tells himself, therefore, clearly, this is what God wanted me to do. Because I'm doing so much better now than I was back then with her. Surely, God approves of me leaving my first wife. See, that's that, 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 that judging with our own eyes, evaluating with our own eyes, rather than subjecting ourselves to God's law, which stands four square against that man. When we evaluate the actions that we have taken by their result and use that evaluation in order to determine whether or not the Lord approves of us, we have fallen into a self-righteous mindset. It is a mindset that believes that good things come to those who are good and bad things to those who are bad. And it's an insidious mindset. Uh, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, the, the Joel Osteen of his day, uh, once said, stand up to an obstacle, just stand up to it, that's all, and don't give way under it, and it will finally break. You will break it. Uh, that's kind of a classic Norman Vincent Peale. It's, it shouldn't be surprising, by the way, uh, that, that Trump has been a long-time fan of his. Okay? But what is Norman Vincent Peale actually saying? 
He's saying good things come to those who are good, and bad things come to those who are bad. That's what he's saying. Your success, therefore, or your failure is dependent upon you. If you succeed, it is because you were supposed to succeed. It's because you deserve to succeed. If you fail, it must be because you didn't deserve to succeed. It must be because you were wrong. Now imagine, I want you to think about that for a moment. What happens when you get what you want and then you get it again and again and again and again? It confirms you in your goodness. It confirms you in your righteousness. It confirms to you that you deserve what you got. That maybe you also deserve a little more. And that inoculates you from the gospel. Micah, Micah was confirmed in setting up his shrine, his idols, and his ephod, and even in having a priest. And that inoculated him from the gospel. You might say, well, how so? How do you see that in this passage? Well, think about it for a moment. What took place at the tabernacle? The sin offering. The sin offering was to be a reminder to God's people that their sins separate them from their God. That he, a holy and righteous God, could not enter into their presence while they were remaining in their sin. The very act of burning up the offering was itself to be a reminder that for sinful man to enter into God's presence would be to be consumed alive by fire. What then was needed? An atonement. A, a, a bloody atonement. A, a pouring out of blood. Their, their sins, in other words, required payment to be made. And who made this payment? Was it the people who brought the animals? No. The cattle on a thousand hills belonged to the Lord. Was it the priest when he offered up the sacrifice? No, because he was as much a sinner as anyone else. In truth, it was God who made the atonement for his people. It was he who, in forgiving them their sins, atoned for their sins, paid out for their sins. For when atonement is made, it is not, you see, that then God is willing to come near to his people. It's not that he says, oh, you've made atonement, now I'll come to you. No, what scripture tells us again and again, instead, that in the atonement, in his forgiveness, it is that he brings his people near to himself. It is he who's the active party in our atonement. He is the God of salvation, in other words. He is the one who saves. Micah, by establishing his own shrine, was denying that the only way we could come near to God is through atonement for our sins. He was denying that he needed atonement. He was denying that he needed a forgiveness of his sins, not by his own labors, not by his own righteousness, 
but by the hand of his Lord, by the hand of his God. He was denying the gospel. And the more he got what he wanted, the more he was assured that he didn't need the gospel. How deadly it is when we think we have received what we have deserved, and it's good. It inoculates us from the gospel. The question remains then, if that is truly the case, if our own sinful righteousness inoculates us from the gospel, who can be saved? How terrifying that must be. Think about that. Our passage hints at the answer to that question right there in the middle of the passage. Right there in verse 6, when it says, uh, right before we are told that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it also says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Our passage teaches us that in our own willfulness, our own desires to see ourselves justified by our own veneer of godliness, that we need a king. We need one who will subdue us, who will rule us, who will restrain us in our sins, and who will turn us away from our self-righteousness. We, we need one who will show us our sin. Show me my sin. Show me my wickedness. Show me my poverty. We need one who will show us the gospel. In truth, uh, uh, this is getting what you need. What we need is to know our weakness, our poverty. Our, our, our sinfulness. We need one who will give to us what Jane Austen gives to all of her heroes. She gives self-revelation. Look, you have been a fool all along. Uh, she gives to them then repentance. I, I'm thinking still, I'm thinking of sense and sensibility. The one who most comes to mind is Marianne. She's been a fool for, for page after page after page after page of that book until through a fever she's brought to see what a fool she's been and she repents. We have a Savior who gives to us what we need despite the fact that we don't want it. Uh, he, uh, we don't want to be shown our sins. We don't want to be shown that our thin veneer of godliness is just that, a thin veneer. We, we, he, but, but he gives to us this that we need. He, and he does so because he knows our need. He knows our weakness. Having himself been beset by the poverty, the frailty of the flesh, by being assailed by every temptation and yet not being overcome by any temptation, knows the temptations that assail us and knows how grievous they are. He knows our poverty. He knows us. And he is merciful, therefore. And he gives to us, as our king, he gives to us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit that we might be ruled by his Holy Spirit. That our, his Holy Spirit might be our help in our every need. Uh, and, and, and of course, the, how does the Holy Spirit do this? He, he reveals to us our sins, doesn't he? 
He makes us aware to our conscience that, that we have sinned, uh, but not just against man, but against God. He reveals to us how we have tried to make our God out to be some magic gift giver, some magic genie. If I just say the right words or do the right thing and worship the right thing or way, he will give me what I want. And, and his spirit reveals to us, no, no, no. You are far more poor. You are far more sinful than you ever possibly could imagine. You are, are far more worse off than you think you are. And he confronts us that we might be mortified by these sins. And then he turns our hearts that we might repent of them. So also he does this by speaking his word into our hearts. He, he, in writing his law upon our hearts. I, I think there's a real vision of this as expressed particularly through the whole book of Judges itself. Uh, I've said this before, the book of Judges is really, it's, it's meant to be a training room, an exercise room, if you will, uh, for God's people. It often, the, the, the author often does not explain to us whether or not the behavior of the people is good or bad. Uh, we've noticed that. The author just tells us what's happening. The author does not explain, does not give us reason to understand or know yet whether we should believe that the person is being godly or sinful. And that's because he expects us, you and me, as we read the book of Judges, to apply the rest of God's word to it. To read it not with the eyes of the flesh, but through the lens of Scripture. To, to read through it and, and to read it knowing God's law. That is, to read it as those who are practicing to be judges. Even sitting over the figures in this passage. And as we do that, we are made ourselves then to sit beneath the pages of God's word. That it then judges us. It reveals, God's word reveals to us our sins. It reveals to us our unrighteousness. It reveals to us our need. The Holy Spirit, by applying Christ to our hearts, gives us new eyes to see that we might more and more understand what is right and what is wrong. Not only in judges, but in our own lives. And then he gives to us, the Holy Spirit does, Christ. That is, he gives to us Christ that he might be a, a healing balm to our souls. He pours out, as it were, his blood upon us again and again and again. That we might know again and again and again that we are right with God. Not because we worship him the right way. Not because we sing the right hymns or write psalms. Not because we have got the right crafted theology. But because God. Christ died for us. We know, or to put it in the word uh, of the uh, words of Judges, we know that He is for us, that He is with us, not because we have a Levite as priest, but because we have Christ, who is not only our high priest, but who is also our King, and who has made atonement for us, and who is the only one who could.
not because we are righteous, but because we have Christ. We do not need that veneer of godliness. We have something far greater, far better in Christ who rules us. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that by your, your Holy Spirit that you would ever humble us and reveal to each and every one of us our sins, uh, that we might be mortified by them, that we may not grow uh, uh, blind to them, that we may not even, uh, uh, a horror of horrors, become convinced that you approve of them. But rather, may you bend us down to the ground that we might see the blood of Christ Jesus, your son, as it's poured out for us, uh, as being more and more and more precious in our eyes, that we might see that it's not by what we have done, but what Christ Jesus has done for us. And then may you so subdue us and rule us by your Holy Spirit, that we might be made more and more into the image of your son with thanksgiving. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.